Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I have a lot of questions from listeners uh, for you. So oh. I thought I would read those questions and then we would answer them. What do you say? That sounds curious. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor at Antioch University. Who are you, Bob? I am a therapist in practice here in Seattle. Um, I do a lot of couple counseling and I do that DBT skills class. And you and me have been friends like half my life. Half your life. Yeah. Half my life too. Yeah. So this is from an anonymous patron. This is about uh, the disorganized attachment style that we talked about. Oh, yeah. And they write, Hi, Kirk. I just want to thank you for being so blatant about disorganized attachment. It makes sense that it would be frustrating to treat, as it is so horribly frustrating to live with when you finally learn about your own behaviors. Mm -hmm. It does get very sad and self-defeating more often than not, but knowing as much as I can about it does help a ton. How does Bob know that his therapist likes him? So just, just chiming in, they write a little bit more here, but hmm. just to chime in, in case people don't remember, we were talking about disorganized attachment and how it is a uh, very... Um, so when we're mistreated growing up, and neglected and abused and that sort of thing, we will develop sometimes what we call disorganized attachment in which we have a difficulty finding ourself. We have uh, difficult working models of self and others, meaning that we, uh, because of the way we were treated, we have a working model of the self that can be quite negative. Um, and a working model of other people that can be quite negative as well, expecting negative, interpreting negative, um, not really having much hope for relationships going well, not trusting other people, and that there's no way of coping. When you have disorganized, that the word disorganized comes from, there's no organization to the defenses. When you have other kinds of attachment styles like avoidant or preoccupied, there's an organization to the defenses. They can be just as, quote-unquote, dysfunctional as disorganized, but there's, there's some orientation of the coping, whether it be narcissism or borderline or passive-aggressive or paranoid. or There's some way of making sense of the world. It can be highly distorted, but there's some way of – for people who are dis disorganized – they don't have a consistent way and it can be very distressing for the individual because there's, there's no landing around. Not to say that borderline and narcissistic people aren't suffering as well because they are, but it's just, it's just a style of, of, of emerging into adulthood. And so we were talking about how that can obviously very, be very distressing to the individual, but it can also be very difficult to treat because uh, it, it can be treatable, just just like everything can be for the. I mean, in terms of attachment, can be treated, but as a clinician, it can be uh, hard because the and and this is true f regardless of how far down on the spectrum you are regarding attachment security, because because the client has um, a lot of needs as everyone does. And a lot of mistrust about self and other pe and, and others. 
as they're trying to heal in therapy, they're, they're interacting. The, the way that you heal from the attachment injury is to have a secure attachment with your therapist. And as you build that secure attachment, the client with the disorganized attachment starts to feel the pleasure of that, but also the terror of it, of, well, what if this person, like all the other people in my past who I got close to, rejects me, abuses me, mistreats me, abandons me? That is a deep, real, rational fear based on the past. And as the person is scared, they start to uh, react to that fear in, in a lot of different ways. Some of the ways that they react is by pushing away, is by saying, I, I can't deal with this relationship. This is all subconscious. I can't mm-hmm. deal with this relationship. I'm not going to get close to this therapist. I might, not, I might not even look him in the eye. I might not um, really respond to their questions. I might sit down on the couch and have really not much to say, even though deep down I am desperate for interaction and love and security. And that's why I'm there on the couch. But I'm so distrustful and I'm so scared. And again, this is a visceral experience. It's not like, you know, it's deeper than being scared of jumping out of a plane. It's Mm -hmm. something that pervades every cell of one's body that goes back to day one of being on the planet. It's just, it's, it's terror. So that's one thing you could do, or you could interpret things in a transferential, uh, negative way and react negatively to the therapist and and accuse the therapist of being bad or neglectful or critical or something. And for the therapist, it requires quite a bit of counter-transference management, and it's not an easy ride. But as we've talked about, Bob and I both agree that that's why we got into this profession is because we want to heal people who deserve to be healed, and we're willing to do the work. We uh, want to do it. We signed up for it. Uh, some therapists didn't know that's what they were signing up for. And, you know, maybe they don't want to work those kinds of clients, and that's fine. They need to screen those people out from the beginning. They can't just six months in decide they don't want to work with those people. But we're willing to do the work. And so some people are emailing in and saying, like, wow, that's pretty interesting because <laughs> I'm a client and I feel like I have disorganized attachment. Am I putting my therapist through the ringer on this? You know, am I one of those clients? That's what a person would think of themselves, huh? What? <laughs> a person with disorganized attachment style, it's the kind of thought they would have. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're terrified of coming across in a way that's rejectable. Sure. And they're terrified right. of losing that, that attachment. Yeah. And the answer is, yeah, if, if you have... Uh, the further uh, insecure attachment you are, the more mistreated you were, the more relational uh, trauma you've been through growing up, then the the higher the likelihood that you are causing some stress to your therapist. But that's why they signed up for it, or at least that's why Bob and I signed up for it and many other therapists who are oriented like us. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones. Yeah. And I've never regretted working with someone like this. I've never said to myself, oh, this person is too much. I wish I never took them on as a client. I wish I never became a therapist. It can be stressful. It can be when someone's attacking me and my personality and saying I'm a terrible person, or they're giving me the impression over six months that I'm completely ineffectual and I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) It can, it feels it's rough. It doesn't feel good for me. I'm a human being and I'm trying to be good at my job, but 
because I have people to talk to and because I have books to read and because I have training in this, I know that when that's happening, that means the relationship is deep enough and secure enough and intense enough to provide a healing space for uh, this client. And I quickly return to a place of compassion for myself and for the client that it's like, well, I'm feeling like I'm not a good therapist in this moment, but I know that I am a good therapist in this moment. It's just a product of this, of this work. And I'm willing to metabolize that. I have the resources. My parents raised me well enough, or I've been trained well enough, or I have good enough support system that I'm willing to do that. An analogy would be, and maybe this is a little bit grandiose is Doctors Without Borders, they don't sign up for that job to have a pleasant day, <laughs> right? They're, they're going to places where there are no physicians. Why are there no physicians there? Because no one wants to work there and no one's getting paid any money there. So these people will fly into areas and there's no, maybe there's no toilets. Maybe there's no running water. Maybe there's war. Maybe there's war. And they're willing to do that. Now, they didn't, they're, they don't, they don't, walk through that job unstressed they're they're probably very stressed out but that's their calling that's their mission that's why they're there so uh now the conundrum the catch-22 is that the clients are the most terrified of stressing out their therapist right yeah. so it's this it's uh, you know it's a different situation than doctors without borders because the patients presumably uh, aren't necessarily relationally traumatized in a way to react to this doctor who is helping them by interpreting them as like, Oh, you know, I can't believe I'm stressing them out. They're probably just like, uh, thank you for helping me out. So I get that. Um, and yet that's why we're in this thing and that's where the healing's going to be. And it, the only way healing can happen is if that feeling of worry from the client and stress from the therapist exists. It's the, it's the only way. If, if that wasn't happening, then it, it's not intense enough and you're not actually healing the attachment. Do you agree with that, Bob? Oh, yeah. So that's what we were getting into. And then you started talking about your own disorganized attachment. And then so they have some questions for you, Bob. How, so you so you were so someone was talking about um, their, you know, transference with their therapist. And you were saying that. Yeah, I struggle with that too. I I've wanted my therapist to like me, and I worried about that. And um, you talked about that experience. So so that and and you had landed on a place where it, where you felt like yes, my therapist does like me, even though I do have some level of disorganized attachment. So they go, how does Bob know that his therapist likes him? I've been with mine for almost two years, and he seems very loving. But I can't help thinking that he's rolling his eyes before he opens his door for my session and wishes I was someone else. Yeah. Did Bob ask him or did he just feel it and accept it after a while? I'm working so hard to connect with another human being on an intimate level for the first time in my life. And the uncertainty of how he feels about me is such a huge barrier. Any thoughts, Bob? Yeah, lots. Um, Yeah, we talk about it. Um, And when he says... Uh, that he feels compassion for me, um, that he enjoys our sessions and my company. Uh, part of me gets sad. And uh, I feel my own longing. And um, 
part of me mistrusts. And um, part of me feels very grateful. And a lot of me feels anxious that um, it's fragile and that I'll be heinous and off-putting and that, as you said, I'm rejectable. And so um, I often do not feel like I can count on it, like don't phone it in, don't don't depend on that. Um, it's too risky, so mind your P's and Q's. And, you know, one of the struggles I had with him early on is he was late for sessions, and it really bugged the shit out of me. And I sort of, at the same time as I feel annoyed with him, I want to protect him from my outrage at his lateness. And really, when I think about it, what it means to me is, oh, he doesn't really care about me. He doesn't really care about me. Because the truth of the matter is, is, I don't actually care about lateness that much, right? It's not like a thing for me. But he's late for me says, oh, you don't care about me. And so we've had to talk about it. And I still feel two years and some months in that I don't want him to be late because I don't want to have to go through that risk. And I want to protect him from me being upset and resentful, and it interferes with candor. So the person asks, how do I know he likes me? Because we talk about it. Um, uh, how do you talk about it? Directly. Like, what do you, do you, oh, do you open it? Or? Yeah, I might, I might say, um, you know, I, do you care about me, or, or am I important to you, or, you know, some version of that. And, um, or, and more frequently, he'll say things like, so we're here and we're caring about you and we're enjoying you. This is fun. I'm having a good time with you. Um, I, I like our meetings, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it comes through this filter of, um, yeah, but maybe you don't, or yeah, but maybe you're saying it. So the question of, do I trust it? We talk about that. He says, how do you know? Like what, you can't see inside me, so how do you know? And um, I look at him, I look around that room, I've been going there for two years as a view of the Space Needle, that's kind of nice. I, I, everybody in therapy knows this, your eyes will go to certain places in the room, you have your places, right? Sometimes the places are your safe places, like where you go so you don't have to look at the other person. But I'll look at him and you know, his, he's a tall guy, he's 6'5", and his chair is because he's a tall guy, he needs a taller chair, and his couch is actually kind of short, so I end up looking up at him, which I do not like. Um, but he'll move back and forth, and he'll raise his chair up and down or whatever, and, you know, it's like the thing's on wheels. And so, um, uh, so let's see, what was my point? Uh, um, it was, it was, it was. You're asking was, him about if oh, he likes you. how do you know it's safe? He's like, well, how do you know? Like, what's the evidence? You know, and I'm like, well, nobody busts in the room. In two and a half years, you haven't rejected me, you haven't kicked me out, you haven't told me you're frustrated with me, you haven't told me anything about not liking me. Sure, you could be lying, but what do my eyes tell me? You know, one of the things about people who grow up um, in uh, trauma is they have very good eyes. They don't miss much. Uh -huh. I don't miss much. And I look at them, and what do I see? I see this guy with a nice smile on his face, um, with a gray beard. <laughs> I see this guy who's seven years younger than me, which, by the way, we did talk about. I used to say to him, I have, I feel haughty towards you sometimes. I just like, and he's like, oh, well, what's that about? And I'm like, dude, you're seven years younger than me and you're telling me how to live. 
And I'm horrified with myself for saying it, you know, like, oh shit, now what's going to happen, right? And you know what he said to me? He said, I think I said this on the podcast before. He said, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and honest to God, since then, it's like, I don't really care how old he is. It's like, I think I needed to let the cat out of the bag so the cat could just walk around, you know, like I don't need it. So now I just sort of feel like another layer, layer or another level of like safety and trust with him. Um. Well, you and I were therapists in our 20s and early 30s. Oh. I mean, when was your first session? How old were you? Were you I was 23. Bef- as a master's level person. Oh, as a master's. I was, I was 28 or 9. So we were both in our 20s. Yeah. And most of our adult clients were older. And I know. All of them, or the ones that we were good enough for, mm. transferred onto us, meaning they they do would see us as parents. We do. We transfer. Right. And so, uh, doesn't matter how old. It turns out it doesn't matter. Though to my ego, you know. Well, ask, answer me this. So, if if you didn't think about his age, was that easier? I don't know. I did not think about it. Because... I find for me anyway, mm-hmm. that if I don't think about it, I don't, I don't notice it. But as soon as I, th- as soon as I think about age and numbers, yeah. then my mind kind of locks into the cultural notions Oh yeah, and I go, wait, what's going on? Mm-hmm. But if I like my last therapist, I never asked her how old she was. Mm-hmm. I actually, I don't even think I ever thought about it because I think I knew if I did, it would be not good for me, mm-hmm. but I suspect she was younger than me. Mm-hmm. or at least my age, mm-hmm. and that kind of wigs me out a little bit because mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to see her as, as you know, above me. Uh-huh, me too, yeah. So is a part of this you being open or making a choice to seeing it in a positive way as you're, so you're asking questions of your, your, your you know, how do I know that you really like right. me? How right. do I know that you really don't secretly hate me. Right. And the therapist is like, well, what do you see? Yeah. And there's no way to know for sure. Right. You can't really know. So as part of it, uh, making a choice in your mind to trust. Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's making in for the first time in 52 years, I'm actually making a conscious choice to trust someone like conscious choice to actually trust. It feels like shit. It's really scary. Right. And I have to do it every Monday between the hours of 9 and 10, more or less. Um, you know, nobody does anything all the time. So th- we have these moments where there I'm faced with this choice. And I use the evidence in front of me, which is, this guy's been really good to me. Really decent. And, and nothing but. And um, sure, he's probably been annoyed with me. And of course, my mind wants to amplify that and blow it out. And it's like, oh, if he's been annoyed with me, then I'm annoying, you know, and, I'm, and it's rejection. And it's like, it's all vulnerable, you know, and I can feel that even right now as we talk about it. Um, but the truth is, is that's normal. It's particularly normal for somebody who's the therapist of a person who's like me, because it, it is, as you said, challenging, right? But the feelings themselves don't mean what I tell myself they mean. They, they mean something, but they don't mean that. So, uh, for me to shake that off, I mean, 52 years, it's a long time to, so it's not going to shake off immediately. 
And as you said uh, last time we were together and we talked about this, you said, well, maybe what happens is you move from disorganized to preoccupied or something like that, which, you know, I could see where for somebody that could feel really fucking discouraging. Like, oh, really, Kirk? That's the best I got? That's, and you know what? It might be. It might be. And for me, wherever I land on the mountain and I have to climb, that's where I land on the mountain. That's where I have to climb. And however far I get before I die, that's as far as I get. And to be honest with you, none of this shit really matters to me. What really matters to me is my marriage. And how is this shit getting in the way of trusting Colleen and being real with her? It's every day. So if I can move it, I don't give a shit if I'm fucked up. If I can move it, then I can move it. And it's better. And it is better. And being married is the hardest thing I ever did. It's the hardest thing. Because it's every day. But um, she loves me. I love her. And through it all, we, we keep at it. We keep at it. Very emotional for me, as you can tell. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I've been with you on that journey. Yeah, you have. Uh, occasionally, and I know how hard it is yeah. for both of you, you, you if yeah. I might speak to of, yeah. of Colleen as well, yeah. and how hard you've worked and how you always return, the two of you, yeah. to uh, trust and, and hope and yeah. um, dedication and yeah. love and let's do this. Always returning. That's a great way to talk about our marriage. Because <laughs> it's also always sliding away, you know, always, not always, but frequently sliding away yeah. and losing sight of one another and the whole thing that happens to people. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was another way to frame it. I, and, I, and I'm, as we talk about this, I, I want to frame it a little differently. I, I still hold to what I say, which is that both of us agree that. Yeah. Wherever you are in the attachment security spectrum, it's hard to completely transform your personality. You can heal over time, and you have uh, healed through all the years of therapy and all the intentional things you've done with the relationships. Even with Colleen, you've healed. And yet you still have a portion of your personality that can be characterized as disorganized. Oh, yeah. And yet you also build a lot of secure relationships and have a practice of mindfulness that returns to healthful, healthy way of thinking and behaving. Mm -hmm. So even though your disorganized attachment, which, you know, makes me sad to think about given the tragedy of your life, really, that you weren't to blame for, obviously, it's completely unfair. It's one of the tragedies of all of abuse is just like you get, you know, treated like shit as a child. And then that shit just continues to pay off in dividends in your adult life. <laughs> like, Here's a finance major for you. Yeah. It's like uh, what a, it's like some sort of weird fucked up devilish investment that, you know, you get this check in the mail and, <laughs> you know, and, and so, um, uh, it, with work, you're you're both going to heal, but not completely. Mm-hmm. And you're also going to learn how to cope more healthily, yeah. more healthily. And 
and I see you doing that. You uh, have the feelings and you're aware of it and it feels like shit, mm -hmm. but you very quickly in your conscious mind go to a place of, well, I could can I could make a story out of this right now that yeah. that I'm that I'm a hateful person I'm a rejectable person mm. and other people generally hate me mm. and I'm either a sad individual or an angry individual mm. uh, alone and hostile and sad yeah or I can actually do something good for myself and tell a story that is different which is I, I I'm gonna trust that this person actually, even though it's really hard to know right now, I'm going to, I'm going to trust because it's worked out for the most part in my life. And although I don't have any tangible evidence that anyone loves me, I, I just have to trust. I mean, it's part of it that, you know, you love people and you know that they don't have tangible evidence of your love for them. Sometimes. Yeah. So it's funny, you know, I'm thinking in particular about one of my clients who I just adore. She's just she's just spectacular. If she listens to this podcast, she's going to know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways, I just adore her and um, I think about her and I think about how I feel with her and I think about how much care and love I feel for her. And um, I think about me as a client in my own therapy sessions and I think, oh, it's the same. He has the same kind of experience with me. You know, I mean, his version of it, of course. And sometimes my brain is so circuited that it's hard to believe. It's like, that feels so weird. It feels so other otherworldly that he could feel that way towards me, the way I feel towards his client quite naturally and quite easily, you know, and quite sincerely. Um, but my brain has, the, you know, the double standard that the humans <laughs> often have, you know. Um, so I, I experience it viscerally, like... Oh, yeah. Well, you do, right. Intellectually, I kind of know that. But experientially, where I live, the habit wants to prevail and wants to assert itself. And so awareness is really good. And, you know, chipping away. Awareness, but uh, robust awareness is what you have. Yeah, you know, awareness by itself is not sufficient. There's yeah. this moment where he's sitting there up above me in that fucking chair and... <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking at him, I'm looking at his eyes, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, yeah, now you, right here, here it is. Here it is. Here's the moment where he says, you're a piece of shit. Well, here's the moment where I get the choice. Oh. Do I want to trust? Do oh. I want to trust? Actually, he'll say it that way. Do you want to trust? You know, do you want to? Uh, yeah. Like, what a great question. Do I want to? Well, yeah, actually, ultimately, I do want to. Do you ever rattle through the evidence? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like he, out loud sometimes. He's never rejected me. Never rejected me. He, he says he likes me. Yeah. Acts like it. He acts like he likes me. We laugh a lot. We laugh a lot. Other people like me. Yeah. I like people when, and sometimes they don't necessarily trust that, even though I do genuinely like them. Yeah. Um, I do sometimes get annoyed with people that I like, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I want to reject them. Mm -hmm. That just means I have a an adult perspective on relationships because they're not always 100% awesome. Mm -hmm. So what do we say to the listeners out there? Because I know there are many yeah. who are wanting to know as clients how to trust yeah. that their therapist actually likes them. 
yeah. and actually cares. For people who aren't therapists, yeah, like, like right. yourself, for people who are in the first six months of therapy, right. for people who might have therapists who aren't as good as your uh, tall-ass therapist, <laughs> um, who are a little less adept at noticing and responding to those kinds of things, which I, I would think that some therapists aren't as good, sure. but they, the therapists still care and care, but they're just not as, as attuned and yeah. practiced or something. We make mistakes. Yeah. What, what advice do you give to these listeners? Well, it's always the same advice, right? Talk about it. 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 It's hard to talk to therapists but, about therapy, but it takes trust to talk about it, right? It does. So even saying that, I don't trust that it's safe enough for me to talk to you about my experience of you completely leading edge, legitimate, important thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Can you throw out some more phrases? Cause I feel like mm -hmm. these kinds of sentences are not in our uh, culture. You know, there's certain kind of phrases like, uh, no, you didn't or something <laughs> where it, it, even though I don't want to ever say that phrase mm. again, it will pop into my head or something mm -hmm. just because I've heard it so many times. And I think that with the sort of healthy phrases that need mm -hmm. to be said around attachment, mm -hmm. they are not said anywhere okay, by anybody. Right. And I think hearing the words can help people. So what other things might one say as an opener in therapy? I don't know how I feel right now. Uh, I notice butterflies in my stomach right now. I notice my eyes don't want to look at you. Um, when I look at you, I notice I want to turn away. Um, uh, I don't feel safe. I feel scared. Um, uh, let's see. Thinking about just things I've said. I mean, no, I've said all these things. Um, do you like me? You know, like cards on the table. Um, don't leave me. Hmm. That one's hard. Um, Why I'm, is it hard? I'm upset with you. Like I, I think always in the want is vulnerability. Like when you want something, now you're vulnerable because you might get turned down. Might yeah. not get it. Don't so, don't leave me. Don't leave me. It's a want for him to stick around. Yeah. To hang in there with me. Yeah. Um. Do you feel the pain of having been lost, left, I, I should say, in the past when you asked that question? Great question. I don't know that I've risked it. I can't think of a time with anybody else that I've, that I've risked it, other than Colleen, I, I guess, um, and perhaps previous romantic partners in, in the middle of um, conflict. Um, I think that I've spent most of my life, though, being very careful so as people don't want to leave me. And as a result, I half show up. I don't know if I've been brave enough to really risk that with my friends or my family. You haven't risked it with me? I, don't, I doubt I have. I, unless you can think of something, nothing comes to mind. Well, what are we talking about exactly? Like true oh, vulnerability or something? Yeah. I can think of a time when uh, between you and me something scary happened it was um you wanted to talk to me you wanted to meet me at floanna's diner you said i want to talk to you about something and i was a couple of days um before we were going to get together and i remember thinking over repeatedly over that time 
Oh, Kirk doesn't want to be friends anymore. Oh, shit. He doesn't want to be friends anymore. Oh, oh my. shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. And when we sat down together and we talked about the thing that you wanted to talk about, it didn't have anything to do with us. Um, it was just something you wanted me to know. and um, Something in my life. Something about your life yeah, that not, you wanted me to know. Yeah. And something I want to support for, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I should hope so. I mean, yeah. I certainly wanted to give it because, hell, you were – that was hard. Um. But I remember feeling so relieved. And I do remember saying to you, Yeah. I'm afraid. Oh, I was afraid you didn't want to be friends anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I love you. You're my friend. I care about you. We hadn't seen each other much. It's hard for me because juggling a marriage and feeling safe enough in marriage to have other relationships is actually quite hard for me. So I don't, I don't see my people as much. Um, uh, let's see. I was telling you that because, 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 because. Uh, well, was I was it? asking you, because you said that you, aside from your therapist and Colleen, you don't show up entirely because yeah. of trust. Right. And with oh, yeah. me. I was surprised, actually, by my fear. Hmm. You know, n- pleasantly, in a way. I mean, it's like, it's really good to know that you're important to me, in hmm. a way. It's not so great to feel like it's so vul- fragile, you hmm. know. Um, uh and, you know, it's funny because the, the crazy part of me w- thought, you know, I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you should blame well, I, someone yeah, like, the, to like reject said, you. The crazy part. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's how it goes. So, um, uh, yeah, you're right, though. You're right. That is that is a thing worth getting upset about if it, if it happens. Well, so, yeah, I get that there's a inner circle perhaps of your therapist and Colleen, and then there's sort of outer circles of trust and involvement and vulnerability. Uh, I have yeah. the same. Sure. Everybody, uh, everybody yeah. has. Um, but it's interesting to think about because for me anyway, f- with you, mm-hmm. there are ways that I can be vulnerable with you that I probably can't be with anybody else. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? And so it's, um, particular to certain relationships, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not entirely attachment secure. No one is. So my own insecurities are also present in my relationship with you. Of course. And, you know, I can think of times when, so my sensitivity essentially is to criticism and oh. to um, disdain on mm-hmm. some level, which is why I hate YouTube. Um and will not take it well. Let's just mm-hmm. put it that way. Yeah. Will feel like it's evidence of justification for me being alone. Ooh, wow. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And there have been times when I've, uh, you've legitimate or justifiably criticized me about things. We've talked about some of them we, that we did. are kind of burnt into my brain. Mm-hmm. Like, like old CRT uh, computer screens. <laughs> and uh, I could probably name, you know, a handful of things about every close relationship I have where that would crop up. Right. And it was, you know, triggers me and, and worries me. Mm. And I guess the the part of it is like the interpretation is, well, that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, where whatever right. vibe... And it's usually a vibe thing too. It, mm-hmm. It's oh, not. Right. It's not just a hey. You know what you said was a little dumb. 
there's some sort of intensity around it, some sort of anger or intensity and sternness, I suppose, uh, that will trigger me to think, oh, that's the tip of the iceberg. They've been hiding this massive iceberg underneath the surface of disdain and res- and contempt for me that they've never really liked me, you know, that, that kind of insecurity. Um, and so that's what I have to fight against. That's, that's what I have to, similarly, I have to say, well, I can either go down that road and not have anyone in my life, or I can trust that it's not the tip of the iceberg. Mm. There is no iceberg. It's just what I see, which mm-hmm. is 99% of the time the person is pleasant and nice and a seemingly a, a, a liking me or approving of me and not rejecting whatever the right. opposite of not rejecting. Right. And 1% of the time they don't like something I fucking did. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a choice and it's a a thing that I've healed from over time for sure. Mm. And a lot of self-awareness around that as they occur, which can be daily sometimes. And, uh, but I, the day I die, I think I've said this before essentially is, you know, with my last dying breath, um, for a half second, something will happen, you know, where I'll have to say to myself, no, 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 it's not the tip of the iceberg. Um, <laughs> there's no ice, you know, the, the last thought I have is, you know, just because uh, the pod wife is uh, looking at me with that face, it doesn't necessarily mean that she hates me. Um, so I'm never going to get rid of it, but I am going to heal. I'm in, I am going to become aware mm-hmm. and, I am going to have routines of coping, mm-hmm. like maybe even just saying, so I just want to check in. Uh, you're not saying to me that you have general contempt for me in this moment. I just have to check in. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't have, I'm just saying, it's just, this, yeah. I like you. I just, this one little thing, like, I think you should change. I, you don't have to change. You know, there's a, there's a routine of, okay, when I feel this feeling, I have options. Right. That I can say, like, like you're saying in therapy, don't leave me. Mm-hmm. Do you like me? I can't look at you. I'm scared. I feel unsafe. When I, I've been worrying about this session for the past three days because uh, last session I said something that I think you didn't like and I thought I was going to show up today and you're going you're gonna to terminate with me. Mm-hmm. Um, just having the words and then that's a, the powerful uh, trust um, action, uh, trusting action to, to say, because um, you are, when you say those things, you're trusting that there might be a positive answer to this. There might be a positive response from the other person. Otherwise you wouldn't say it at all. Right. You know? And so, and then when therapists actually respond well, and to you therapists out there, because you're listening to, some of you are also clients, but some of you are, are uh, just therapists who are thinking about this, is I hope that this is getting under your skin. If you, if I know I'm preaching to the choir definitely with some people, but with others who haven't really been trained in this way, who've been trained strictly in a CBT model or a family systems model, they uh, might not really fully identify with what we're resonating with here. And uh, what a, 
what a wonderful thing we can do as therapists. What a wonderful thing that we can do is to encourage or, or respond well to those conversations, cultivate those conversations. And when the client asks those questions, pouring it on, because I, I know therapists and I know certain pockets of our industry that if a client asks, do you like me? The therapist is quote unquote supposed to say, why are you asking me that question? <laughs> what, what about you makes you ask me that question? Mm -hmm. And I find that to be horrible. It's deflecting. It's fine in a certain realm, like, sure. um, are you heterosexual or do you like blondes? Like, mm -hmm. there's certain things where you could say legitimately, like, yeah. well, I'm interested why you're asking that question. Right. But when someone asks a central feature of the healing nature of therapy, right. and all you have to fucking do is say, yes, I do like you then uh, you should be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> when you understand the importance of the security of a relationship right. and there's nothing wrong with saying, but the other, so the other thing is, and I've, I've had these conversations with clients before is they will, they will ask me that question and I'll say, well, so the short answer is yes, I do like you. But if you want to hear my full answer to this, like let's get into that conversation. Because yeah. I think it might actually help you to know what's in my mind. Right. I think it might help you to be able to trust uh, everything that's happening mm -hmm. from me. Um, because, yeah, 99% of the time, I'm either neutral about you because I'm not like, there's not a super big valence about you. Or I'm very positive. I respect you. I like you. You're a nice person. Mm -hmm. You're trying hard. Um, I don't dread talking to you. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a, a lot of funny things you say or mm -hmm. um, interesting things. You've said some things as a client that have um, affected me where I've, uh, wow, you know, that, that was pretty profound. Right. I think I could carry, I could learn from that. Right. Um, but I'm not going to lie. There are some times when, yeah, I get a little annoyed. Now, some of that annoyance is just me where I'm just, it's, it's just triggering something in me, like an issue of mine. Like you remind me of my brother or something that um, I didn't like about him. And, and it just sort of, I just sort of reminds me of that. And I notice that and sometimes, and sometimes I don't, um, but it's fleeting and it's, it, and it's my, it's sort of my, I own that. And sometimes I'm annoyed with something you did. Like once when you did this, um, I was slightly annoyed because I felt like you were not being nice to your spouse or you were um, not being a, a good citizen in the world in that, in that way. It's, it's, it's kind of a, shall I say, selfish attitude. I have those selfish attitudes too. I, it's not like you're any different than me or anyone else. But I'm not going to lie to you and say that I'm 110% in love with you all the time. <laughs> there are times when, uh, if we're going to get into this, if we're going to actually have a relationship, there, yeah, there are times when um, I, I'm not like, uh, I'm not like 100% behind what you're saying. But that's a big difference from right. disliking you or rejecting you. Right. It's okay for me to be like, eh, like I, that's not for me. That that statement or that attitude, that's not for me. And maybe, you know, we can work on that. Uh, that's a, that's nothing akin to this person is rejectable. I right. have contempt for this person. I don't want to talk to this person. Everyone I know, my wife, my parents, uh, my best friends, uh, everyone that I know close enough, I have significant criticisms of in my mind or 
concerns about or hurts that I've experienced that I've gone through with them or um, distress that they've caused me. But that's life, you know, and if you can't um, deal with the occasional moments of distress that someone gives you, then you'll just be alone and sad and, you know, not in a good state. You know, it'll be the Unabomber up in the woods. And so uh, I choose life and I choose people and I choose those occasional moments. Uh, and I choose those with you. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of conversation you can have as well. Yeah, I I, I think um, if it's asked with curiosity, what makes you ask or what part of you is asking? And with the answer, yeah, I do like you, right? Yeah, I do, right? I like my clients. I do. I like my clients. Um, uh, but exploring is uh, an invitation to vulnerability. So, like, it's important, you know, it's important that my therapist like me. It's important for, you know, all the reasons we've been kicking around here. So um, I think that the opportunity to reveal self in the exploration of what makes me ask this question, do you like me, is essential. And one of the, one of the hardest things I do in my own personal counseling is say, I feel, fill in the blank, and I want fill in the blank. It is so hard. I want you to like me. I want to know I'm safe with you. I want to know you're not going to reject me. I want to know you accept me. Actually, one of the things I'm working on this week is saying things in positive language. So instead of, I don't want, saying, here's what I want, or I don't feel, well, here's what I feel. It's actually quite hard to do. You and your personal life? Yeah, my personal life. And actually, kind of everywhere, I'm trying to frame things in terms of positive language. What do I want? Not what I don't want. So someone cuts you off in the freeway and you say, I want someone not to cut me off in the freeway. Uh, I want to be safe on the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of uh, fuck off, get out of my yeah. way. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm making a joke, but in our personal lives, right? Yeah. It, it, I want to feel safe and secure in my marriage. Right. I want lots of love and attention. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, instead of. I don't like it when you don't text me back. Yeah. I think I drive Colleen nuts with that sort of thing. I can fall into that. It is, it's inaccurate. And um, it's certainly my reflexive response is what I don't want as opposed to what I do. We had a fight a couple weeks ago. And um, I I came into th- – actually, it's funny. I went into therapy all righteous <laughs> the way I get all righteous. And we started talking about it. And he, you know, he's sort of like steering me towards – um, how it makes sense that Colleen might have had these uh, responses to me and how, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like I could totally see how she'd be upset with me. I didn't tell her what I wanted. I told her what I didn't want. So she felt, you know, like now she's under pressure to figure out what the hell I want and then supply it if she can, or if she even wants to do that, maybe she doesn't have the gumption or the energy for that. So instead of saying to her, I I want to make a good choice here, an aesthetic choice, because it was had to do with this dresser going in a closet. I want to make a good choice. I want it, you know, it's important to me that the the place look good, right? I was saying to her, I don't want to put the dresser in the closet. <laughs> it leaves her like, okay, now what, right? So when I went home that night, and this is uh, two Mondays ago, when I went home well, that so night. So can I break this down a little bit? Sure. Because I think it would help oh, for yeah. the listeners. Sure. So Colleen is like, I want to put the dresser in the closet. In the closet. And uh, let me hypothesize what's going on in your mind at the time. Oh, yeah, let's do it. So given your attachment security issues, 
you have this very quick sequence where you don't want it to go in the closet. There's, mm-hmm. there's some preference. It's just a normal preference. Right. You, you, you just, there's just something about it you just yep. don't like. Yep. And you have this impulse to say it, but then you worry about it becoming a problem. And then mm-hmm. as a, you know, a string of events and Colleen will divorce you. Mm-hmm. That's people have this. Oh, no, no. Everything you're saying is a hundred percent true. Everyone has this, by the way, uh, regardless of attachment security. Right. Um, you could be the most secure person on the planet and you would have an inkling of this. Yes. It would just be less sort of powerful and less traumatizing, less triggering. So you have that thought like, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm about, I, I don't want that. It step two. Wait, I'm going to have to tell her I don't like this. Mm hmm. Uh, step three, oh my God, what if this leads to a fight and she, and she, and she leaves me and then I'll be alone and it'll be sad and it'll be terrible. Mm-hmm. And then you think, uh, step four is, well, how do I cope with this? I, and then you're just kind of up in your head and uh-huh. you're just, you're kind of frozen in a sense of, uh-huh. so I have to tell her. So you just say, I don't want it in the closet. Well, oh, what I tell myself is my preferences don't matter. So then you go to, uh-huh. Irritation uh, to uh, another trigger, interesting, uh-huh. yeah. of not worrying about abandonment. But um, uh, this is just yet another example of how uh, my preferences are rejected yep. and I never get my needs met. Exactly. And then, interesting. Um, so this is all before you say anything. Oh, yeah. This is all <laughs> happening. <laughs> and then, so then you're angry and hurt. Yes. Uh, before you say anything. Before anything happens. And then you just say, I don't want it in the closet. And part of you might feel a little righteous around. Oh, a little. <laughs> <laughs> around like, how dare you not respect my wishes. Right. And reject me over something so small and make right. me feel like shit over something so dumb. And then it it's comes. It's like you were there in the yard with me when we were having the conversation. That's exactly <laughs> what goes on for me. And then you have the you say what you say, but it comes out in a very interesting way. It comes out in a way that she probably knows very well, which is like, Oh, something's going on. I don't know what's happening. And she's not your therapist. So she has her own triggers and her own issues. Yep. And so now she has some sequence of events that Uh are probably similar in terms of just like, Oh, so my preferences aren't going to be heard or why is he upset already? Or, you know, whatever that's happening. Right. And then, you get into a, then the fight happens or the distance happens or the distress happens. And then that that's where the damage is done. Right. Oh yeah. Then actual shit actually goes down. Shit shit went down. People say, fuck you, or I can't believe you, or I can't deal with you right now. Or, um, why do you always have to be this way? Or, you know, that's when, that's when people actually say things, you know, when when couples come in or individuals come in and describe these things, I always want to start with that initial thing. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that you've done so much work and you're a therapist yourself, you can instantly kind of rattle through those very quick microsecond reactivity and traumas. And you're very familiar with that. I Uh, think you give me a little more credit than I, um, than is accurate. What do you mean? Because I actually wasn't thinking about any of this shit till I went to therapy the next day. And talked about it. And, you know, at first I'm like all pissy, 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 righteous, righteous, righteous. And and we slow it down and do the very kind of breakdown that you're describing here. Um, and um, I reframe in my head. I start seeing things uh, through a different lens than the distorted. So how, though? Because I know a lot of our listeners are asking that. It, it, is it the amount of work you've done? Is oh. it... 
the choice to trust? Is it the choice to trust humans or to trust the positive narrative? Like, what is it? For me, it's a desperation for my marriage to be good and for me to know that I'm um, being a good husband. And so I'm, I'm uh, uh, willing to accept the feedback from him and um, listen to what he has to say because, you know, two years and he's been, you know, helping me and usually has good things to tell me. And I, I listen and I notice things go well as a result. And, and his willingness to say, I can see how she would be bothered by this because you're saying what you don't want and it's leaving her adrift to try to figure out what the hell you do want. And she may not be interested in trying to figure that out. It might be quite hard for her. And me, I'm just like, don't my preferences matter? You know, and I'm, 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 I'm mad about it. I'm, mm-hmm. Cause I'm in, I'm in my own story. So, um, because I want it to go well, because I recognize that, yeah, maybe it's because of work I've done. I recognize that I'm a contributor to the difficulties between us, though I have a blind spot to seeing them uh, in the moment. I often think I'm right. Um, but because I, we've gone through this many times, her and me, and then him and me, um, I can pretty easily, fairly easily listen. I often, as a result, feel relaxed. Mm. Like, oh, Okay. This makes sense. All right. Oh, yeah. And then I feel humble, not in the humiliated way, because I don't feel humiliated, actually. I just feel like, okay. I don't always know what's happening. Yeah. And that's very interesting that it feels relieving. It's relieving. And I, it's the same for me, too. Yeah. Um, it's a weird path to relief, because mm-hmm. when we're angry, we think the relief is for the other person yes. to say, you're right, I was wrong. Exactly. That's what we get locked in on. But right. so often the relief is, as as you say, this this humble, uh, almost, uh, no, people will say letting go. I almost said that. That's not what I want to say. Mm-mm. It's a, uh, it's just a reframing, as you said, it's and an a, acceptance. A, just a different narrative and really the true narrative, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And it's, right. it, and with that narrative, it's such a better world, by the way. Right. Such a better world. To believe that other people are horrible and treat other people, treat me horribly, is not a fun world to be in. Oh, that's stressful. To to believe I'm a piece of shit because I did X, Y, or Z is not a fun world to be in. A much funner world to be in is we all have attachment insecurities. We have these sort of micro reactions and these very quick uh, uh, traumas that are triggered and ideas that are said and narratives that are made that compel us to be very, very hurt and consequently very, very angry and uh, interpersonally it, you know, creates this cascade of hurt and anger between the two people. And both people began that process trying to love the other person and trying to be loved. And there was this misinterpretation and this, this story was told uh-huh. and if you see it that way, then it's like, Oh, what a better world to live in mm-hmm. where everyone's trying to love each other and everyone has their sensitivities and their mm-hmm. vulnerabilities that mm-hmm. make them feel hurt to the point where they can't tell the other person that they're hurt. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. so scared mm-hmm. and they're so hurt mm-hmm. that they can't say it. And what they do is they attack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's such a better world to live in. Mm-hmm. And I, th- again, I think accurate again, it's, it's a story, but I, I really do think it's accurate. I, b- I believe that is accurate. Yeah. And, to go that so that's what you do in your mind is you 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 try to find it but for you it takes some time you have oh, you have yeah. a you have a process 
you, um, I'm, I'm guessing you did a number of things even prior to therapy where it's just like you tried to do some damage control. You're like, okay, well, yeah. I have an impulse to like keep this going and to lay into her about 10 other things, but I'm not going to because I'm pretty sure that's not a good idea right now. I'll wait until I talk. I don't know. What did you, what did you say to yourself? Well, we went quiet and I say to myself, I don't want the quiet between us. I don't want her to withdraw. Um, I, I want to talk about it. And so I say to her after some minutes, I want to talk about this. Can we talk about it? And she says, yes, we can talk about it. And we talk about it. And I don't remember what was said. It didn't end up in a huff. Um, but it didn't, it didn't also end up, uh, with the relief that you're, that we were just talking about. So it was sort of like a detente, like we're not quite done. We don't really know what to do. And we're sort of stuck right now, but it's not awful. And so, okay, this is enough for now. And I don't really know what I'm going to do about it. I don't know what to have. I mean, I really do feel at my wit's end and not sure what to do. Because I I recognize I have a blind spot. I do have a blind spot. And so I rely on my my guy, my therapist, to help me with my blind spot. He helps me with my blind spot. I take a breath. I'm relieved. I see myself properly, I think accurately, clearly, and then I send her a text saying, hey, you know what, here's what I think happened, and I feel bad about this, and I imagine this was quite hard for you in these ways, and here's Kitty. And what does she say? Thank you. Oh. So she trusts as well, and mm-hmm. when you come back and yeah, she allows, instead of... See, that's why... Uh, yeah, no, Colleen's not like that. Okay. She said thank you. She often will describe her own difficulties, uh, like almost like if I'm doing it, it's an invitation to um, for her to do it. And um, then we're connected. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's very healthy. Yeah. I think... I want to know what you think about the following. All humans have insecurity, as you were saying, and... All humans need to check in at the home office, and that's normal. Like, all humans need to hear, I love you. All humans need to um, find out that their partner, yep, I care about you. Yep, I'm really here. Yep, I love you. Yep, you're important to me. Yep, I'm making this as safe as I know how. Yep, your safety is important to me and all that. And that's normal for humans. Um, uh, And that the folks that are securely attached have a facility for um, doing that more easily than uh, others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, t- and to reach out to Colleen after the therapy session and text yeah. her is a secure attachment thing. Yeah. For her to say thank you is a secure attachment thing as right. well. So it's not like there's some other side of the fence. No. It's, it, there, there's behaviors and quote-unquote securely attached people, like you said, are I'm insecure as well. And, yeah. and yeah, the, the, the things that people will do that I will uh, coach co- clients to do are when is one noticing when you are feeling insecure because we've been taught not to notice that right. we've been taught yep. to be angry and rejecting mm. and I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody. <laughs> and the, uh, so one is just noticing that it's just like, man, I'm feeling, you know, something happened or I haven't had any, a real closeness with my spouse lately. And right. I, I, I'm feeling that right now. Or you go to a dinner party with your spouse and your spouse was talking with other people and not you the whole time. Yeah. 
and you're driving away and you just, and you notice like, Oh, uh, I, I feel distant from my spouse right now. I, 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 I and I, I like being close. Right. And I, now I can tell myself the story that my spouse is a inherently neglecting, a horrible person who purposely wasn't talking to me and was purposely talking with everyone else because that's just how they are inherently. Or I can tell myself that, um, you know, a hundred other explanations like my spouse likes to talk to people and they get to talk to me all the time. Or my spouse gets kind of nervous in dinner parties. And one of the things that kind of falls away is while they're nervous is their ability to notice my feelings, which makes sense. You're just, you're terrified and you know, you're like, you're about to give a speech in front of a thousand people and your spouse comes over and bids for some attention. You're not going to have the resources in that moment. And a dinner dinner party can absolutely be that way for some people. So there's there's a lot of different explanations uh, that are not probably the incorrect thing, which is my spouse is inherently bad and our, and our marriage is bad or something. I'm not important. I'm not important. Yeah. And so you are driving away from the dinner party and you notice that you notice that impulse and you also say, okay, well, I want to go in this direction, but my, I'm going to trust that my spouse loves me. And, um, and you know what, regardless of what just happened at the dinner party, all I know is right now I, I, I feel a longing for some kind of, uh, acknowledgement that this, that this person loves me and yep. that this person is dedicated to me. This person is loyal to me. This person likes me. This person wants to be with me mm-hmm. and doesn't have any secret plans to leave me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to say, uh, so honey, you know, I'm just having one of those. And this is the other thing that I tell people is like the first five times you say it, it's going to be real weird mm-hmm. because you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound real corny, mm-hmm. but the hundredth time, it's not going to be so corny. Mm-mm. So, uh, Get used to the fucking corniness, uh-huh. I tell people. <laughs> like, uh, don't not do it because it's corny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and corny, you're only saying corny because some clients, some clients will say it's kind of corny. Yeah. And I'll say it's only corny because you haven't been shown it. Yeah. It's only corny because you haven't seen it before. It right. seems odd. But I'm here to tell you, uh, it's one of the most fundamental human fucking experiences you can have. Yeah. So there's nothing corny about it. Uh, it's It's fundamental yeah the the notion of i wonder if my spouse loves me is fundamental right. i wonder if my parents like me is fundamental uh so uh, however you want to put that into words you can you can use whatever language you want but that's the message that you want to ask of your partner or whomever do you like me um please reassure me that's the other part of it is you can ask, do you like me? Do you love me? Do you like to talk to me? Um, but a, a, another phrase that I encourage people to say is reassure me that you love me. Yeah. Now, you don't want to be hostile about it. Re- no. Reassure me that you love me, you asshole. You're right. That's, that's not going to work. It has to come from a place of trust and of expectation that it will probably go well enough. Now, the, again. It's going to feel vulnerable when you do it right. Yeah, right. But. What a glorious thing. And oh, yeah. you, you have to, and by the hundredth time you do it, you'll trust the answer because it will go out. The other thing is, is the first five times, 10, 20 times you ask your partner, they're going to be corny and awkward about it too. They're mm-hmm. not going to know what to say. Right. So unless I have the couple in the room with me, if I'm talking to an individual, I tell them like, so just expect weird answers in the beginning <laughs> and trust me that your partner does love you and, and like you. Yeah. But the first 20 times they answer, they might go, why are you asking me? Right. 
or I don't get what you're getting at. Right. And so you might have to even say, well, what I'm, I, I just, I'm looking right now for just some reassurance that right. you love me. My therapist told me I should ask you. <laughs> Fair enough. Blame the therapist when in doubt. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it, no strings attached. You, right. you, you can, you can, uh, say whatever you want. And if, and there's no right answer and I'm, I'm willing to just have those conversations with you. Right. I really hope that you say something like, yeah, I love you a lot because I think about you all the time and I don't think about, I don't want to be with anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, I I want to be with you for the rest of my life or whatever it is that someone says or or the person says nothing and just hugs you and kisses you and says or just gives you the vibe that they're yeah, the vibe. Yeah. So the those kinds of bids, as we call them, for affection and for attachment security are normal and fundamental and uh, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. Um, it's, it's important that people recognize that securely attached does not mean I don't need nothing. It means I recognize my need and I seek it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Well, I like you, Bob. Thank you. I like you too. Um, it's funny. Like one of the things that I think about when I think about your, uh, your and my relationship, I guess, is that Colleen actually says to me sometimes when you're not around, she'll say something like, um, it would mean a, I, I personally know, like you'll have a birthday party or something and, or some event and she'll be like, I, I, I personally know that it would mean a lot to Bob if you came. Oh yeah. That kind of thing. Mm. And I was always like, oh, cause we're in a friend group. There's a group of sure. friends. Yes. And so it can seem at times especially in certain eras of our friendship yes, where it was like, Hey, it's, it's the group. Yeah. You know? And, uh, although it's, it's, I'm not saying you didn't have close relationships with the other people. Um, but that it was not just the group and not just a fun relationship. It, it actually had meaning, you know? And, yeah. And so anyway, a person could see it like an orchestra and think, well, if one violin is missing, it still sounds good. And not see, oh, my violin actually matters. Yeah. It actually makes a significant contribution and Bob's going to miss it at the party if I'm... <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, I just think about that sometimes about oh, Colleen because, nice. you know, she, it was like she knows behind the scenes, I suppose. Mm, um, that's true. But, uh, but yeah... I mean, you know, we've known each other a long time Mm -hmm. and we've been through a lot together Mm -hmm. and we've had um, a lot of bonding conversations and experiences, I would say. Yeah, many. And a lot of fun. Yeah. (laughs) And well, you're a fun guy. Oh, thanks. You too. (laughs) Well, and sometimes I'm the instigator of the quote unquote fun that that (laughs) you sometimes that you. uh, do <laughs> we'll just leave it at that yeah right um and um i both uh want to well i both i both want to know that you care about me and actually like me and mm-hmm. want to um be with me mm-hmm. um and also reassure you that i absolutely 
like you and want to be with you. And, um, you know, as I'm dying, you're a little older, you, you might live longer than me. Yeah. Um, you'll be there with my wife and, you know, <laughs> a few other people, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I guess I just want you to know that. Thank you. It's touching. Yeah. Is that convincing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if I was being convincing enough. So there's a thing that can happen in me wherein I can register what you're saying on a sort of a prefrontal cortex, intellectual, cognitive level. Yeah. And I feel the choice. Do I want to take in what you're saying to me? Like really take it in. Yeah. And I can feel the mm, part of me that's reluctant, not out of dismissal or, you know, disdain or anything, but out of intense longing and fear of disappointment, mm. uh, fear of rejectability. Mm. Um, and habit. And uh, right this second, um, I can take it in. Good. Thank you. And, man, uh, it's such a tragedy that you have to um, do that work to, you know, it's unfair that people treated you shitty in your mm. past that would give you the question mark about whether or not it's accepted or whether it's safe to um, really take in or t safe to open yourself up to allow it in. Um, I mean, I have a little bit of that, but not as much as you do. And I can identify with it a little bit. But like, there's not, it's not hard for me to say, um, you know, yeah, I trust that Bob likes me and wants to, wants to be with me. Um, which I think actually has something to do with just your vibe. You're, you, you give off probably a more, um, accepting vibe than I do <laughs> on some level. I don't know about that, but okay. Um, I'll tell you, as we sit here and talk, the question that rattles around in my head, the vulnerable question is would you still like me if I wasn't fucked up? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I like you because you're fucked up. I don't know. You're, you are who you are. Mm. And you've never, ever done anything to me that was inexcusable or um, re uh, relationship rejectable. You know, like I was talking about earlier, it's like, you know, there's been times when either one of us has annoyed each other. There's never been anything that... Um, I was in, even for a second in my mind was just like, well, I don't want to be with this guy anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not friends. I have to let the cat out. She's really, she's, she's got lots to say too. Okay. The cat, the cat has an attached, uh, secure attachment style and just making her needs known the way cats do. Yeah. They're good at it. Actually. They're actually cats at my house. Cats are our heroes because yeah. they're very assertive. Ah, well, right now my cat's attached to her food bowl. And she, <laughs> it's on a timer and she hasn't learned how to um, look at the clock yet. And so although the food bowl is going to turn in three hours, she, she's really just not quite sure. So she's going to be ready. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that, uh, what was the, what was the question? In your Would mind? you still like me if I wasn't fucked up? If you weren't fucked up. Oh, well, that's weird. Is I mean, <laughs> one, you're not fucked up. Uh, I don't see you that way at all, Bob. I don't see you that way at all. Mm. Like you have your 
issues that we've talked about in this, in this episode and, and others, but, um, but maybe a better way to put it is, you know how, when you drive by a car wreck, you can't help but look. And when you see somebody injured, you can't help but have your heart go out to them and feel, if I wasn't a tragedy to you, if my story was not a tragedy to you, would you still care about me? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a interesting, um, worry, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. But I mean, are you saying like some people might treat you like you're a project or that, or you're, you make other people feel better about themselves because they're not fucked up or something. I, I don't know. Like what, why would someone only like someone because they had, they were fucked up? We feel p- compassion for other people's pain. Like so, the way a nurse does to an injured person. Yeah. 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 So no. if, if I wasn't a person of pain, if that's a way to put it, I mean, it's sort of weird as we get into this because I don't think of you as more right. fucked up than me. Uh-huh. Like, we've been, I've been framing it that way, I guess, in some sense, in terms of the attachment spectrum. But, um, and certainly I would imagine, I guess, on the scale of things, you, you've been traumatized greater and you have, you have greater triggers than, than I do. I have triggers and I've been harmed in the past, Mm. um, that come up for sure. Uh, but I've never framed you as, more damaged goods than me. That's not how I see you at all. Um, I think I've said this in, in previous episodes where uh, from the beginning, I, I looked up to you because mm. you were older one and you knew more about the field than I did. Um, and I would say things and you'd be like, actually, no. And I would be like, oh, really? <laughs> like, or I would ask you yeah. things. I would I remember like, so what, what does this mean? You know? And not only just professionally, but also just in life, you had been through more therapy. Mm. You knew more about how to speak to our own vulnerabilities. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think of you as more it's fucked funny. up than it, me. It's the kind of question my mind would create. And it's, um, I think, um, surprising perhaps from the outside to have that question because it isn't part of how you see me. So I'm listening to what you're saying and then hearing you say, yeah, I don't look at you through that lens that you're, that you're imagining. I look at you through. Um, but it's the kind of thing that I think for a person like me, a very easy question to, um, a very easy sensitivity to have. And is it real? Nah. I mean, I that, mean, well, I mean, but that's the question you have. Sorry. Yeah. The question is, I see this person likes me. Is it real? Mm-hmm. And right. if there's right. any answer to that question that like, well, yep. it, it could be unreal because of this. There you go. It could be unreal because of that. My, my mind is adept at um, <laughs> checking all the angles. Right. You know? Yeah. Just, you know, just a thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah. Thanks for <laughs> answering. <laughs> um, this is the episode in which, Bob and I just therapize each other for the entire time and <laughs> expect that other people would be interested, I suppose. Is this going to be a patrons only or is this going to be an everybody? No, we'll make this everyone. Okay, good. Um, so let's take a break and when we get back, let's answer some more questions. What do you say, Bob? Yes.
right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Some of Bob's episodes are patron only. So if you want access to the full Bob, you got to go full patron. <laughs> uh, never go full Bob, as they say. Uh, also, just a reminder that when you become a patron, part of your money goes towards various philanthropic efforts that we do here. We've already donated about $10,000 to various uh, philanthropic organizations, scholarships, LGBTQ charities, animal charities, homelessness, uh, to, you know, homelessness charities to end homelessness. And so uh, know that when you become a patron, your, your money is really making a difference in the world. That's so cool. Join us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, I am on YouTube Live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, and if you want to talk to me, please, if you want to email me, please go to our website and fill out the Contact Us page. There should be a link below for that, actually. Also, if you want access to our archive, you have to go to our website. You know, only the last 300 or so episodes are on your phone app. And if you're on Patreon, it's really hard to go back even 50 episodes because you have to scroll up a lot. So if you're using the app on your phone or using the website, if you're using Patreon, it's really hard to get access to older episodes. Wow. The only way you can get access easily to really any episode is to go to the website. I have them all by date. I have one, I have pages where it's just by date. And then I have these other pages by category. And so uh, it's a good way to listen to episodes there. You can, even if you're a patron, you can go there and there's, there's a couple pages with, with all the, the premium episodes on on two pages. What's the website called? Psychologyinseattle.com. Oh, yeah. So uh, also, uh, any of you new patrons, if you're having trouble with the premium feed, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or, again, go to the website and fill out the Contact Us page, and I can actually help you. There Soon, just a little info is... In the future, very soon, I believe within the year, there will be a very easy solution. Because right now when people become patrons, there's this whole long list of, of instructions that people have to follow in order to get access to the premium content. And it's not ideal. Obviously, the long instructions are stupid, but even the solutions aren't very good. And so after 20 years of podcasting being available... Uh, finally, people who actually want to make money from this are inventing solutions that are very easy where all you have to do is click a button and boom, you're good to go. And so I predict in five years, actually, Patreon will even have a solution for this. But anyway, so we just have to hold on a little bit longer with the jankiness of premium content access. And soon, and I'm working with actually this this company uh, to to find a really easy solution. So hopefully that'll happen soon. It, wow, I cool. know it will happen eventually. It's just a matter of when. And it could happen tomorrow, but we'll see. So um, let's get into some other things here. Sure. Lying in therapy. Do mm. your clients lie to you, Bob? Probably. Yeah. Well, what do you think about that? I'm the worst person to lie to because I believe everything everybody tells me. <laughs> Uh, and I think that uh, what will happen is um, they'll probably get uh, a less, benef- less benefit from it as a result of lying. And coming clean is so interesting. I mean, what an opportunity for learning. 
I think people are afraid if they've lied, then they've, they've torn it, you know, oh shit, if I come clean about my lie, then I'm going to get rejected and they're going to hate me and da, da 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 And really, I mean, I don't know how I would feel if somebody lied to me, depends on what they lied to me about. I might be bothered by it. I'm pretty confident that there's, n- I'm confident that there's nothing anybody would ever lie to me about that I would find so heinous and rejectable, you know. You burn my house down, shoot my dog, and um, uh, then maybe we'll have trouble. Short of stuff like that, you know, nothing anybody's going to do. So anyways, but I think that people will have a hard time fessing up to lies because they're afraid of the consequence, which is, you know, on the one hand, understandable. Yeah. And the other hand, a lost opportunity if it goes on um, to work with it, to learn about it, to uh, grow, if that's a way to put it. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the various lies that clients might have said to me or even ones that I discovered later mm-hmm. on. And yeah, I'm like you too. I I just believe everything I, I'm I'm told. Having said that, in my past, I worked a lot with kids and teenagers, and oh, with, yeah. with them, I wasn't quite so um, just believing. But but I wasn't confronting. I would just like if I s- said something like, "So when is the last time you smoked pot or something?" And they're like, "Oh, I don't smoke pot." In in my mind, I'd be like, well, you know, that could be a lie. But yeah. I don't really care because I'm a therapist. I'm not a cop. I'm not a parent. Right. I'm not a teacher. Right. I'm a therapist. And if they want to lie about that, I don't. What What is the difference to me? Yeah. So, uh, so it's not like I am naive about things that people lie about. And I suppose that sometimes in family therapy, the parents would lie about their would knowingly deceive or knowingly leave out certain behaviors that sure. they remember doing. Say the kid is like, well, you told me to fuck off and you threw my bag down. And the parent knows that that happened and says, what are you talking about? I right. didn't, I didn't do that. Right. So, um, in those situations too, I might be a little skeptical of people's statements, but again, I'm not going to say you're lying. There's very few moments where I've actually attacked it. One example, I, I, I think I've talked about this a podcast before. I had a um, a tween girl client who was adopted and had massive attachment injury and was uh, had a very had the very common um, uh, behavior of attachment disorder in which she would lie pathologically. Um, essentially, when so when you're a kid and you are for and you do something wrong. You want to lie about it because one, you want to stay out of trouble. And two, you don't want disapproval from your parents. You want your parents to like you and accept you. And so they're like, did you, did you throw your younger brother's toy out of the window? (laughs) So you're, you're worried about being in trouble. You're worried about timeout or whatever, but you're also worried about disapproval. You're very, very worried about disapproval. Of course. And so, because you were so, you know, if you ha- if you've been uh, attachment injured significantly uh, in your early years, you believe that people can drop you like a like that. They will just get rid of you if they don't like you. Boom, they're done with you. You're gone because that happened to you. You were abandoned by your parents. You were uh, you went into a foster home. You were uh, moved to another foster home that feels like an abandonment, and then you you know you finally land in this other home and. You just have this working model that's just like, if I do something wrong, or even if I don't do something wrong, people will just drop me. And I don't want that. I, I, want, to, I want this relationship. 
But instead of saying that out loud, because you you have to know what's happening, you also have to trust other people to um, to say that. Plus, you actually, you actually have to have a self to know what's happening in yourself, and or you have to sorry, you have to have access to yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the uh, it, so the solution is to lie, right? You say, well, no, I didn't throw that thing out the window, and then uh, for most kids who are secure enough, you you can say, well. Your younger brother says you threw it out, and I'm I'm pretty sure you threw it out the window. So I need you to fess up on this. Lying is bad, and you're hurting my feelings when you lie to me. So a secure kid would be like, "Okay, fine," and they don't they don't want to tell the truth, but they're they're more desperate for approval than the worry about the consequence of what they did, and so they're like, "Okay, fine, I did," and then things go okay. They're not rejected. Everything works out. For the other kid that with the attachment disorder, they uh, they no matter how much reassurance you give them, no matter how many times you actually go through that experience of lying and um, not rejection, the the kid. Um, still has that attachment issue and still is terrified of that rejection and still doesn't have a connection with the self and continues to lie. And even though you've confronted them and said, I have videotape of you doing X, Y, and Z, there's no sense in continuing the lying. The person will continue to lie. And so I had a client like this and I, what I was really hoping was that I, cause I thought we had a pretty good relationship. I thought I could convince her to tell at least me the truth and then she could see me not freak out and reject her. And then she would have this corrective experience. And then she would be more secure attached slightly. And she would also be less likely to lie in the future because it was getting to be quite of a problem to the point where her uh, adoptive parents were thinking about sending her back into foster care, mm. which happens a lot, by mm. the way. Mm. And uh, not because the foster pa- adoptive parents are bad people, but because the parenting stress is so great. It mm-hmm. can destroy families. Yeah. And some people are like, uh, I signed up for this to, to help the world. I didn't sign up for this to, to like be completely discouraged and destroy my life, you know? So I really worked on this with her and she never gave in. Wow. You know, she just, I, I, I was like, um, I know you did it. Everyone knows you did it. It's totally fine. You're, you don't have to tell your parents. You can, you know you can tell me things. I'm not going to tell your parents. I just want to show you that you can tell the truth about something, and it's okay. And I'm not going to reject you. It's it's no skin off my back. And and I real I just remember this moment. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna crack this nut. Oh yeah. And I never did. Yeah. And it didn't destroy our relationship, but it's just an example of of how entrenched that yeah um, issue can be for people. I'd say the lies are probably more lies of omission than commission. People admit shit. Right. So yeah. that's one thing. It's like, uh, so when we're talking about lies, what are we talking about with clients? A lot of people will leave stuff out. Yeah. Like, um, like what we were talking about earlier, a terror that the therapist is going to leave you. Mm-hmm. You know, some clients might not mention that because they're worried about what it means. So it's not lying, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's omitting something. Um, so I, there was an online poll, which I'm forgetting where it came from. And they had the top 10 lies that clients will say that they lie to their therapist about. Cool. So what do you think they are? Oh, um, let's see. So this is like you ask a bunch of clients, what have you lied to your therapist about? And they have them by, by rank and by percentage. 
I actually have no idea. What is it? Well, have you ever lied, quote unquote, to your therapist before? I'm sure I have. Like, of course. What, what do you think it would be about? Um, oh, um, i canceling a session because I'm sick when okay. I'm not sick. That's one. Uh, what is that one? Where was that? Um, why I missed appointment or was late. 29% of clients said that they've lied about that. Uh, what else do you think people might lie about? Mm, I would probably leave out details if I'm on a righteous rant. I'd leave out details about my own behavior that contribute to the trouble and sort of just blame it all on Colleen. Okay. Um, but this is, see if this is in the pretending. Um, oh, things I have done I regret. I'm embarrassed about. Yeah. Yeah. So 26% of clients said that they will lie along those lines. Um, other things are the number one was 54% of people said that they lie about how bad they really feel. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they, do they exaggerate how bad they feel or well, they underreport? I would bad. imagine most of them are underreporting. I guess some people might overreport, but I, I suspect most people are underreporting. Um, you know, you've had clients like that where oh, sure. you, uh, they, they somehow reveal through some method or means or you detect mm -hmm. wow you're you're actually really suffering um and then you realize i wonder if they've been suffering like this all the time and they just haven't been telling me about it because they don't want to bother me with it or they're hopeless about it or mm -hmm. something yeah uh the next is similar to that at 39 percent, the severity of my symptoms mm -hmm. uh 31 percent, my thoughts about suicide Oh, yeah. People don't like talking about that. Yeah. 31%, my insecurities and doubts about myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 29%, pretending to like my therapist's comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I, every therapist I've had, there have been times when I did not think what they were saying was very helpful. Uh -huh. And I don't think I've ever told them that maybe rarely I'll say something like, ah, I don't think that's very useful to me. Usually I just like nod my head and go, okay. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what I would do. Let's move on. You yeah. know, that kind of, uh, 29% my use of drugs or alcohol. Right. People, People generally underreport. Right. Uh, 29% pretending to find therapy more effective than I do. Trying to think. Yeah, I've done that. 27% pretending to be more hopeful than I really am. I don't know if I've done that. Have you done that? Um, yeah. I mean, not like uh, in the way I wouldn't describe it that way, but like if I'm at the end of session, I might be like, yeah, okay. I think I have some things to work on. Oh, or right. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I have some things that I can, I feel like I know what I'm doing. And cause I'm trying to reassure the therapist that they did a good job. Right. But it, there's a pretty big part of me where it's just like, I don't, I don't feel like this is going to help at all. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go right back to whatever kind of fucked up situation that was. And <laughs> it's, it's not going to change. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. So those are what quote people lie about. As we were talking about earlier, as you were giving advice, Bob, it's like one of the best things you can do is you just tell people right now. I am afraid to tell you that I smoke pot every day. Right. Or right now I am 
afraid of what will happen if I tell you that I think about suicide every day. Mm-hmm. Or right now, I am... Um, I I have this urge to reassure you that your therapy is working, but um, it it actually, I feel like, I don't know, maybe it is, but it doesn't feel like it is right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Those kinds of things, therapists are trained and they're supposed to respond not only just kind of well, but it's supposed to be a humongous jumping off point for therapy. Right. Um, So you deserve that care and um, take the leap and with therapists that you think can handle it. Having said that, I know some therapists out there can't handle stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, step one, step one, find a good therapist. Yeah. That's step, important learning too. <laughs> yeah. Step two, uh, tell them everything on your mind because they're supposed to know what to do. I, I mean, I get, I get emails almost every day from people saying like, I have this thing I want to tell my therapist, but, um, I'm afraid of what'll happen. And, uh, what a wonderful opportunity to be proven that the world accepts you. Yeah. Um, and for you to deny yourself that is, um, is uh, denying yourself healing. I get the tension and I get the terror. And I, you know, we live in a society where it's like, oh, it's TMI or keep it to yourself sure. or what's wrong with you? Like you're, in, you're so insecure yeah. or why do you have that kink? Like that's sick. Yeah. Like you like to watch rape porn. Like that's disgusting. You're, you're a disgusting human being. Um, it's all over the place. And what a wonderful thing that therapy provides because it's purposeful. It's in our ethical codes that, uh, you're not supposed to shame people. Right. (laughs) And you're supposed to be the sort of therapist that understands that there's a lot of different things that are unacceptable to culture, but, totally acceptable morally speaking right. and totally acceptable for humans to have. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, just because I don't tell my therapist doesn't mean it's a lie of omission. Like I'm thinking about a part of my personal life that I'm openly telling my therapist that I do not want to talk about unless I'm clear there's some benefit and value, but I don't want to turn it into confession about and feel shame because I already feel shamed. Um, um, and I don't want to just talk about it because you're supposed to talk to your therapist about everything, you know, some kind of weirdo rule. I want to, I think it's perfectly okay that, um, clients have privacy, even from therapists. They, they don't have to tell everything. Yeah. There ought to be some reason for it. Um, or there ought to be some understanding of why I'm not like, it ought to make sense. Yeah. I see clients doing this sometimes. Yeah. They'll, We'll we'll delve into some kind of sexual thing, for, yeah, yeah. for example, right? And they'll just glance over it uh, or give the uh, overall gestalt of what we're talking about, right? And I can tell that they don't want to talk about something. Having said that, there are other clients who uh, I can see they reach that why in the road, and they're just like, "Well, I'm in therapy. I might as well tell them." And there's like, "Okay, well, if you want to, if we're on the while we're on the topic." Um, this is what I do and this is, this is what happens and there's this fluid that happens and it gets kind of smelly or whatever, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the, the yeah. and, and in my head I, I'm thinking, I don't know if this is relevant to our therapy, but at no time am I thinking I, I want to shut this down yeah. or I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, if anything, what I'm thinking is. Ooh, what a great opportunity right now I have to show this person that I'm not going to shame them and I'm cool with whatever this person says. So sometimes 
being TMI with a therapist is actually a wonderful opportunity for, yeah. some, for some healing. I agree. Um, all right, next question. TMI in quotes, because you and I probably don't, we don't really agree. We don't really uh, believe in TMI. No, there's yeah. no. Uh, my hat's off to my um, women clients Yeah, who talk about, you know, women parts. Yeah. Candidly and openly with me. Yeah. Uh, I imagine it's weird and difficult. To me, it's like, well, I have heard this before. You know, it's not new, but I often feel like, all right, way to go. You're like jumping in, aren't you? Yeah. Bravo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with our culture around creepy old men oh, who yeah, that. Uh, masturbate to everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, I mean, that's a real thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I've always thought that was just the silliest thing. Because mm. uh, er, early in my career, as a as a close example to this, I would do in-home family therapy. Right. And one of the things that I would have to do is that, well, I, I got to meet. So I would, I'd do family therapy and I would meet with the kids alone or the kid alone. I'd meet the parents alone. And I'd meet with them together. And so if they're all together, it's usually in the living room, right? Or at the dinner table. Right. If it's individual therapy, I might be with someone for a couple hours. And I can't be in the living room because other people have to come and go if, the, if there's a bunch of other people. So the logical choice is their bedroom. Right. And it's also a wonderful opportunity to get to kind of know someone oh, sure. by their the way their bedroom looks and right. the posters they have and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Plus the kid feels very confident and secure in their own bedroom. And so I would meet with kids in the bedroom and some of those clients were girls. Yeah. They were 17 year old, probably empirically attractive young, young ladies. And we would go into their bedroom and, and there's no chairs. So I would sit on the bed or on the floor and we'd close the door and we would talk. Mm-hmm. And none of that felt strange to me. Mm-hmm. I'm a professional. Yeah. I'm a clinician. Uh, I am uh, it, never on my mind is anything related to um, some sexual urge on my part or uh, some, some kind of, um, I don't know, anything. All I'm thinking about is how am I going to help this person and what do I have to do to create safety and what do I have to do to help this person feel safe to tell me what's on their mind so right. I can actually help them and their families. Um, and so years later, at some point, I can't remember where it was, but either I said something along those lines or, you know, I said, well, you know, we, we so we went into her bedroom and I was sitting on her bed. I can't remember what I was saying, but s- someone said something. This would have been 15 years ago or something. And I remember, th- I remember th- being very upset, like, What? And mm-hmm. then later I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, of course, because that's our fucking culture. Right. How weird. I, 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 for the first time, I objectively looked at what I was doing and I said, if you posted this on the Internet, I would get so many concerned people right. writing in about. So this, uh, you know, 29 year old, long haired uh, rock and roll guy. Right. Is going into 16-year-old girls' bedrooms for two hours and closing the door, and the parents are just letting that happen. Uh-huh. And you don't even know what's happening in there. In fact, he he even says he talks with them sometimes about their sex life. 
that man is a fucking predator. Right. And it was, um, it was very bothersome to me. I mean, I get why our society has some of those attitudes and, yeah. and some of it is good. It's questioning. It's like, Hey, we're not gonna yeah. just accept like, Oh, that guy just really likes kids. Safety like, really matters. Right. But at the same time, that automatic assumption. Oh, yeah. And and again, if half or a quarter of men did this to people, I would say, okay, well, it makes some sense. Even though I'm not one of those people, it's um, a safe bet that maybe I am. But the num- the percentage of men and women but even just of men who do this sort of thing is so small. It's so small to have me be lumped in with such a small, small minority of people, the very rare bad apple among millions of fine apples is, um, I just find it be incredibly unfair sure, and destructive. Yeah. Safety. Yes. And, we all need to do better at detecting things like the Larry Nasser case. The, oh yeah. The gymnastics guy. Yeah. Um, if you believe in such a thing, the Michael Jackson situation, I know some of you don't believe Michael Jackson did it. None of us know if he did it or not. Only those who were there. Um, and so anyway, yeah. <laughs> my point is, is we all need to do a better job at, yeah. as a society and as individuals at, looking into some situations that could be concerning. But we also need to recognize that 99 point, I don't know, I don't know what the percentage is, but the vast majority of people, men included, are not capable. Not only do they not want to. They don't want to. But they're they're not capable of it. You would have to kill me. You, you know, you put a gun to my head and I'd be like, uh, you're just going to have to shoot me. I'm not... I'm not going to do that to a child. It's just not, you're just going to have to kill me. It's just, I can't. Oh yeah. It's so heinous. It's so outside your values. Not only that, but just physically speaking, like I, it would be, it would be repulsive. Like there's nothing about that. That would be, it's just so, um, it's like jumping into a giant vat of spiders. Like there, there's Mm -hmm. my body won't do it. You're just going to have to kill me. And so, uh, so to be so vastly, so 180 degrees wrong, misperceived, right, is hard to take. Right, it is hard to take. Yeah. One time when I was an intern, I had a client who was having an anniversary of something just awful—the death of a child, the death of one of her of her child was coming around. Did you say, sorry, did you say client or clinician? A client. Okay. So I was seeing her at this clinic where I was doing my internship and we were talking about this anniversary approaching and how she was going to cope with it because as you could imagine, it was an awful time of the year for her to have it come around. And among the many things that we talked about is for her to just get by, just survive it, just get by was masturbation because right. why not, right? I, tell you, I probably told you about this. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Every therapist in my consult team these are seasoned therapists these are not interns these are seasoned therapists freak the fuck out like oh my god you talked about that just you know and it's like this implication that what i'm gonna jerk off with her like i mean are you fucking kidding me that's what they thought yeah yeah 
They thought that because I talked about it, that made me a dangerous character and I had breached some kind of, you know, boundary because we had a frank discussion about how masturbation at least gives you temporary relief from awfulness, from pain, right? So uh, my friend, uh, David, uh, the psychiatrist on the team and really just a lovely guy, he's like, he just says to me in front of everybody, Bob, Americans are freaked out about sex. We're really uncomfortable with it. And so therapists are really no different. So when it comes up, we just have a hard time with it sometimes. <laughs> you know, like like just validating, but also yeah. invalidating. Yeah. You know, like what did the rest of them do? I think they just went quiet. I remember just feeling really pissed off. Yeah. Like, are you fucking, and also anxious. Like, well, wait a minute. Well, what if you were a woman? Right. Good question. I don't know. Oh, I think I know. What would happen? They wouldn't have reacted that way. They would have just been like, well, what if the client's a man and you're a woman? Do you think it would be any weirder? Uh, I think they'd be concerned for the woman's safety or something. Yeah. Got it. Oh, you're talking about masturbation with your guy. Oh, well, you know. Masturbation for men is gross and disgusting and associated with um, just grossness, with like adolescence, with sticky socks Uh and... Uh, disgraceful things. Disgraceful, good word. Uh, women masturbating is associated with liberation, mm-hmm. self-love, relaxation, and nothing gross. Yeah. There's nothing gross about women masturbating. There's everything gross about men masturbating. It is one of the weirdest things in our society. And uh, it was, I'm sure it was playing a role mm-hmm. in that, in that oh, yeah, scenario. No doubt, no doubt. Gender and masturbation. What an interesting... I don't think I've ever really said it out loud yeah. like that before. I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh, I really like this conversation. This is good. I mean, it's one of the... It's like, uh, what's... Uh, boys are pigtails and everything that smells. How does that... How does that... Oh, yeah. Um, sugar and spice and all that's nice. That's what girls are made of. Yeah, girl and... Yeah. Puppy tails and something... And I thought it was pig dog... Pig pigtails. Pig Pigtails? Oh, pu- puppy dog tails that are like disconnected yeah. from the puppy, right? And and something else. That's what boys are made of. Right. Yeah. When we were kids, this was a thing that we said, uh, everyone said, including adults, as a part of socializing kids to understand who they are. Right. That girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. Yeah. That they're, they're prim and they're proper and they're pure yeah. and they're nice and they're good to others and they're Mm -hmm. conscientious Mm -hmm. and they don't like to roll in the mud Mm -hmm. and they don't like to play sports and they like to build a home and they, they like, you know, the Marge Simpson. And then boys are puppy dog tails, meaning disconnected puppy dog tails. Right. Snails was probably in there. Snails. Yeah. Yeah. Boys were disgusting things, but in kind of a good way, like boys were gross and rough yeah. and violent and not very lovable mm-hmm. and not conscientious and didn't care about other people mm-hmm. and laughed about it. Mm-hmm. That's what boys were. This was a, this was something in yeah. the 70s that was just said and was known. And like I said, adults said it. And there was no pushback on it because that's just how it is. Well, of course. Well, it's Girls like... Are, Spice and everything nice. Boys are gross. They like to roll in the mud. What's the big deal? I just said this thing that everybody says. So what's, you know, what's the harm? Yeah. Right? It's, everybody knows this. So what's right. the big deal? It's just part of the fabric of the culture, right? Well, it's a fabric of biology is what I remember thinking about it when yeah. I was a kid. Right. 
And but if you're a parent, you're not thinking, I'm injuring my kid. You're thinking, it's Tuesday. Right. Yeah. I'm just being real. Yeah. Boys are, boys like to rough and tumble. Yeah. And yeah, and teenage boys masturbate into socks and it's gross. <laughs> and girls are clean and nice and everything is, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, innocent or something. Yeah. And when boys are masturbating, it's this offensive, violent, gross right. thing. And when girls are masturbating, it's their liberation. Now, I'm not saying when girls are masturbating, it's not liberating. And I'm not saying it's not clean. I'm mm-hmm. not saying girls are dirty. I'm just saying, like, uh, um, it doesn't matter what gender you are. Yeah. Uh, masturbation is a thing. And it's, I guess it's a lot of things to a lot of people. And both people could, I guess, be quote unquote gross about it. And both, all genders can be uh, liberated about it. Yeah, and, you're not uh, talking about masturbation. You're talking about cultural attitudes. Yeah. That are fucked up. Yeah. You're like, yeah, masturbation, you know. Right. We all do it. I mean, I mean, just as an extension of this, and I've talked about this before. Okay. Uh, you go into the office. Both of us don't work in offices, but, or I guess I do at the, at the university. So let's say I go to my university at a staff meeting, and as, you know, p- people are talking, what'd you do this weekend? And I was like, oh, I went on a hike. Right. Or, or oh, I went golfing. Right. Or, oh, I mowed the lawn and, you know, had a beer and, uh, you know, went into the hammock. Yeah. Everything's, oh, sounds nice. What if I said I masturbated three times and boy, did it feel good? <laughs> now, let's say, what if I said I went to, I went to a spa and I got a massage, right. a three-hour massage at, you know, the Salish Lodge or right. whatever. Be, oh, that sounds nice. What if I said... Um, my, my wife, uh, did things to me this weekend, man, you would not believe. And let me describe, you know, step by step, uh, (laughs) what she did. People would be one disgusted. They would be mortified Two, I would be reported to HR three. I might get fired. Oh yeah. Right. I might literally be fired fired for talking about, for talking about, Something that everybody does it's or most people do. completely normative and normal and functional and yeah. everything that's, you yeah. know, a person. Yeah. Even if I said, I went to a bathroom somewhere and this random dude came in and we did it. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> everything is fine. And it is one of those things that, man, when you see the matrix on that and you start looking around oh, at, at us, it is... Metaphor. It is, a, we live in a weird, you know, people talk about 1984 and, oh, we don't want to go in that direction. We live about it. That, that book? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, the book where, or these dystopian futures where like Handmaiden's Tale. We're living it right now. Oh, yeah. We have, we have things like that where yeah. everyone has just accepted certain ideas around sexuality right. and gender that are aliens would look at us and go, what are you doing to yeah. yourselves? Do you know how they do it? They're kind of weird over there in that planet. That is, yeah. they, they have this weird thing, this yeah. these weird ideas about what penises are associated with mm-hmm. and what vaginas are associated with. They, they like, it's, it's a very strange thing that they do. It is they, they have very thing. odd ideas and they, it's very weird rules and they, their laws are kind of situated around that. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it is the strangest thing. Uh, I predict in, I don't know, probably 300 years, people can walk into their place of work and say, 
I had sex with my spouse last night and it got it got lubricated. <laughs> it got it got liquidy. There there were things and man, it was good. Um and uh how was your day? Oh, you know, I went on a hike. I, 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 I Oh, so it sucked, huh? <laughs> I predict in 300 years that will happen because it's only logical. You know, that shit's going to swing. It's going to go. Now, now what I'm going to get is I'm going to get emails from people being like, when I hear stuff like that, it triggers me. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, why does it trigger you? Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't trigger you. And I'm not going to say your triggering feelings aren't valid. I'm saying your trigger exists because partly of culture. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, they know this to be true, that when you have been sexually assaulted, part of your reactivity long-term has to do with the way that the culture sees it. Oh, yeah. So someone, someone mugs you on the street. Right. Someone uh, with a knife holds you up. You give your watch and your wallet and your cell phone. You walk away. That's traumatizing. Sure. That's terrifying. They're, but right afterwards, you report to the police. Guess what happens? They take a report. They believe you. They don't, they don't question yeah. whether or not you were wrong or right. You are at a dinner party or you'd be like, you don't, you're not going to believe what happened to me last weekend. And one, you talk about it. Yeah. And two, people are like, oh my God, yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Right. Okay. You are sexually assaulted. Same scenario, same alleyway, same person, knife point. That guy rapes you. You, one, if you even go to the police... The police are going to question whether or not it really happened. Why were you there? Were you intoxicated? What were you wearing? Uh, why were you even there at night? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how many times has this happened to you before? Is this woman promiscuous? Uh, so uh, not only that, the laws might actually protect this person. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, you go to a dinner party, you're not going to want to talk about it because one, people aren't going to want to hear it. Some people aren't going to want to hear it. Um, Two, some people are going to judge you mm-hmm. as like, oh, what kind of what kind mm-hmm. of person? So, what kind of person are you that it happened to? What kind of person are you that you're talking about it? Right. And why are you laying this on us? Yeah, right. If you were mugged, no big deal. Yeah, you're raped. Totally different story. Yeah. Now that's only because we do that to ourselves. We invented those rules yeah. at some point in our society. Did indeed. And so the harm of being raped is massively compounded by the way in which people are treated afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I talk about a world in which people can be able to talk about things, I'm not saying it should be tomorrow. I'm saying as we progress for 300 years towards that point, we also at the very same time progress in a way where people who are sexually assaulted are not made to feel that way right. and are reacted to in a fair and just manner so that when you are traumatized sexually, uh, talking about sex doesn't trigger you mm-hmm. because after you were sexually assaulted, for you, uh, for many people, after being sexually assaulted, the topic of sex was triggering to you because most people, even when they brought up sex or you brought it up, that was also traumatizing to you. So when I talk about that world, I talk about many different changes happening. Oh, yeah. Many different things happening so that uh, people can be real. Now, at that 300-year point, 
we're still going to have people who are going to sexually assault people. I'm not mm. saying that's not going to happen. But what a wonderful world it could be where when people are sexually assaulted, they feel absolutely safe to raise their hand immediately and say, I was sexually assaulted. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a world where that can happen, where when someone stabs you in the leg with a knife, you can say, someone just stabbed me in the leg with a knife. We have that world right now. Mm -hmm. What we need is a world and someone uh, grabs your butt at work. You're at a club and someone grabs your boob. You're in a club and someone grabs your penis. You can live in a world in the future, hopefully, where you can raise your hand and say, this person just sexually assaulted me, and there's not a complicated reaction to that. Right. In the same way that if someone stabs you in the leg with a knife, and you say, that person just uh, stabbed me in the leg with a knife, there's not a complicated reaction from society or from the law or from your family or from your friends or from yourself. It just happens. It's just like, oh, a victim, something bad happened. Let's tend to that person. Let's stop the perpetrator from doing what they're doing. We do not live in that world right now. And I get that. uh, And we absolutely need to change that. And in a parallel manner, we also need to change the stigma around just talking about sex in general. Yeah. Because it's not healthy for people. All right. Well, that does it for that uh, soapbox and episode. (laughs) Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.